This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 20th of November 2015, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its second annual conference entitled Protection Elsewhere But Where? National, Regional and Global Perspectives on Refugee Law. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Andrew Caldor. I have the privilege of uh, chairing uh, this next session, uh, which uh, being after lunch in conference parlance, it's usually known as the graveyard shift. Uh, but I think with our distinguished panel uh, and very interesting topic, I trust uh, you'll be able to stay awake. What I'd like to do, please, is to um, uh, have each speaker present in turn and then uh, uh, have a full uh, discussion at the end, so that including the, uh, the panel talking amongst themselves and, uh, so that anybody can ask questions, including myself. Uh, the, the subjects in this next session are oriented towards understanding a little bit more about what other countries do, which I think is critical to developing options uh, for a better policy. Um, when Renata and I helped to establish this uh, centre two years ago, three years ago almost, um, our hope was that by getting the facts out there and clarity on uh, what Australia was doing vis-à-vis international law, things would change. But that clearly hasn't happened. And it's quite evident now that um, these kind, the facts and the position legally and the cost of our policies don't really count with the majority of Australians. Uh, Kate was saying uh, earlier that uh, coming from the States and describing to her colleagues what uh, our policies are like, it's hard for Americans to uh, uh, appreciate the uh, harshness of our treatment of refugees because they say, but Australians are such nice people. Um, It's And it's true, we are. Um, But the policies that we've adopted have been put into a different set of framework and the people don't look at it on compassionate terms. When one-on-one you talk to people and they understand and put themselves in a position of a refugee, they uh, say, oh, okay, but then what are we going to do about it? And that's why I think if we're going to succeed in changing the policy... We've got to take a lead in starting to take a step towards the development of uh, options and what the next steps should be in developing an option. Uh, Critical to that is the understanding of what's happening overseas. I have to say, too, that uh, there's a paper from Kate that um, is included in everybody's package um, that um, I I hope you'll have the opportunity to read. Uh, But to introduce Kate, she's the lecturer in residence and the executive director of the Miller Institute for Global Challenges and the Law at Berkeley Law uh, at at, uh, University of California. Her uh, research focuses on the uh, interplay of refugee law, human rights law, international humanitarian law and international criminal law. It's quite a matrix, in particular as these areas are shaped by national security concerns. She's the vice chair of the American Society of International Laws, Lieber Society on the Law of Armed Conflict. 
Um, she has served on the American Bar Association's Commission on Immigration Reform. Uh, she's been an expert consultant on asylum issues for the US Commission on International Religious Freedom and has acted as an associate rapporteur for International Association of Refugee Law Judges for the, uh, for the Red Cross, UNHCR and IOM. Prior to joining the faculty at uh, Berkeley, she was a legal advisor to UNHCR. So over to you, Kate. Thank you for being here and addressing us. Thank you, Andrew, for, and Renata, for inviting me here and for all of your wonderful work that you do. Uh, so off we go into the graveyard shift. Uh, I will do my best. I wanted to start with two observations about the current situation um, globally. The first is that we are acting, and we in the broad sense of the word, we are acting as if there is no precedent. I think there is two reasons, there are two reasons that contribute to this. One is obsessive and unbalanced media coverage. Events seem to move very quickly. Um, it's actually our attention that moves very quickly. Jane mentioned this morning several reasons why it was entirely foreseeable that Syrian refugees would be moving toward Europe, and yet our attention gets grabbed by a single image or an event, uh, and then our focus gets moved along to the next thing. So we have an attention span problem. Uh, we also have very short memories. I think, the, in my opinion, the constant reiteration that the number of forcibly displaced persons is greater than at any time since the Second World War is actually very unhelpful. I think it's really important to disaggregate those numbers. Uh, they're both higher, the number of refugees and internally displaced. But I think it's important to keep our focus on refugees. And I'm happy to talk more about that or, or hear pushback from the panelists or others. So we act as if there is no precedent to our situation now. The second observation is that we are acting as if we are paralyzed, as if we don't know what to do, as if there is no legal or policy or practical experience to guide our actions. And I think there's a link between this ahistorical thinking and protection paralysis. Now is an excellent time to look back at past regional efforts to protect refugees, and not least as a corrective to this current ahistorical thinking that implicitly and oftentimes explicitly rejects well-established refugee rights and state obligations. And I must say, despite the fact that I do think Australians are very friendly people, I was really shocked by that No Way video. I had not seen that one before, so thank you, Madeline. Um, today's protection paralysis requires that we turn also, as a matter of some great urgency, to different questions and larger issues, to the complex contemporary challenges facing the international protection regime. So in the policy brief, I explored, and today I will quickly summarize, the best practices, some best practices from the past, along with some new perspectives. So to alleviate any suspense, I conclude that there are four essential prerequisites for regional cooperation. Protection, participation, leadership by UNHCR, and political will. On the way to that conclusion, I'll address the definition of and rationale for regional, co regional cooperation plans and how they work, 
I'll comment on the legal issues they raise, and I'll provide I was going to provide two examples, but probably at that point it will be one example of state practice in this regard. So first off, what is regional cooperation? You can pick your definition. There is not agreed legal terminology. I'm looking at protection-oriented multilateral plans that are practical and principled responses to the protection needs and humanitarian challenges of asylum seekers, whether they arrive in large numbers or in small numbers. Why do states participate in such arrangements? The objective of regional cooperation is to provide effective protection, which is often beyond the reach of a single state, even wealthy states like Australia and the United States. A successful plan allows responsibility to be distributed equitably across states. Any regional arrangement must be understood as a complement to and not a substitute for individual state responsibility. Well, how do regional protection plans work? Of course, they vary depending on the region and the circumstances, ranging from treaties in Africa and Europe to in the Americas shared legal standards incorporated in domestic legislation, and at times in the Asia-Pacific region, situation-specific agreements. What legal issues are raised by regional cooperation plans? And again, I have two preliminary observations based on international law. The first is that when states join together to provide protection and seek solutions, they're bound by the same legal standards that apply when each acts separately. States have obligations under international refugee and human rights law, both as a matter of treaty ratification and customary international law. And second, Refugees and asylum seekers cannot be in a space where no laws apply, regardless of whether states purport individually or together to make that claim. Regardless of their location on land or sea, refugees and asylum seekers are always within the ambit of the law. The law of state responsibility, which some speakers this morning were mentioning, is clear that a state is responsible for respecting the rights, whether it act, respecting their rights, refugees' rights, whether it acts alone or in concert with one or more other states. So turning to refugee law standards or the legal questions posed by regional protection arrangements, there are three. Legal standards, procedural standards, and standards of treatment. Of course, the primary legal standard is the principle of non-refoulement. And of course, it applies regardless of how many asylum seekers arrive or what resources may be immediately available to assist them. Procedural standards for determining refugee status may vary according to the circumstances. As Erica mentioned this morning, states in this region and elsewhere often rely on UNHCR to carry out refugee status determination. One pragmatic response could be to grant protection on a prima facie or group basis. It's often thought of as a practice linked to Africa with their broader refugee definition, but it could equally be used in countries that use the 1951 convention definition. As for standards of treatment, human rights law applies not just to citizens, but to all persons in a state's territory or subject to its jurisdiction. 
This includes, and I'm just mentioning a few out of a, a robust list, but this includes these standards, access to territory, protection against arbitrary or prolonged detention, humane treatment, and respect for family unity. In situations of large-scale influx, reference may be had to UNHCR's Executive Committee Conclusion Number 22. And in cases of extended stay or delayed solutions, which seem to be all too common nowadays, standards of treatment need to improve accordingly. So now I want to turn to state practice. Uh, and I will start with one from your region. I think I will do both. One from your region and one from my own. And this would be the Comprehensive Plan of Action and SIRAFCA. Uh, which is the International Conference for Central American Refugees. In both cases, I will quickly sketch this, the situation that gave rise to the regional cooperation, the policy goals of the various actors, the legal basis for the regional cooperation, and the implementation mechanisms. So I know this is a group that is probably pretty familiar with the CPA, but just so that we're all on the same page for the discussion. The situation that gave rise was, of course, the end of the war in Vietnam in 1975. Between 1975 and 1979, over a half million Indochinese, as they were called in those days, fled to nearby Southeast Asian countries. By 1979, some 200,000 had already been resettled in Australia, Canada, and the United States primarily, other countries as well while 350,000 remained in the countries of first asylum. Several states at this juncture, 1979, several states announced they would take no new arrivals, and Malaysia and Thailand were already pushing back boats. So in the 1979 agreement, and the CPA is often called the CPA, but it's really 1979 and again in 1989. But so in 1979, the basis for multilateral action was that all Indochinese would be resettled. So they were assumed to be refugees, and the focus was straight to solutions. As the 80s, 1980s progressed, it was seen as being a pull factor. This has already been mentioned, uh, which led to a new agreement in 1989, which limited resettlement to those determined to be refugees after status determination in the countries of first asylum. The CPA and also SIRFCA are largely seen as successful examples of regional cooperation. And certainly in the case of the CPA, by the mid to late 1990s, unauthorized departures from, from Vietnam had basically stopped and the camps in the region and detention centers were emptying out. The policy goals of the various actors. Vietnam, of course, sought financial and political benefits from cooperation with UNHCR and the international community. They particularly sought closer ties with the ASEAN countries. The countries who first asylum wanted to stop the arrivals. They wanted to find solutions other than local integration for reasons we've talked about earlier. Uh, and their concerns included domestic ethnic tension, national security issues, and difficulty in absorbing the perceived economic burden. Well, of course, refugees weren't allowed to work, which tends to make people a burden. The major resettlement countries, uh, of course, the U.S. wanted to help its former allies. 
Um, Australia was able to maintain a greater control over its borders by helping to limit spontaneous arrivals and taking resettlement cases instead. The legal basis for the regional cooperation in 1979, the agreement, as I mentioned, was to maintain first asylum, keep borders open to people, resettlement for all, and an innovation was safe departure from Vietnam through the orderly departure program. Uh, and over half a million Vietnamese eventually left through safe channels through orderly departure. In the 1989 CPA, because of this concern about open-ended resettlement uh, and Vietnam's agreement to accept returned asylum seekers, a new consensus was possible. Again, to maintain first asylum, to reduce clandestine departures, to conduct RSD for these new arrivals, and then to resettle only those new arrivals who were considered to be refugees and to return the rest. For implementation, there was a core group of states, and I, I mention this only because the CPA was a broad political agreement, and as it was going on, states, the core group of uh, states forming the coordinating committee, along with UNHCR, really worked out all the details. And UNHCR is credited with playing a really pivotal role as the C CPA ran its course. So let me turn now to the International Conference on Central American Refugees, which was also, um, the conference itself was in 1989 as well. The situation there was a trio of civil wars in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, which displaced two million people during the 1980s. Approximately 150,000 were recognized as refugees. 900,000 were termed in the region externally displaced. Um, states don't like to call people refugees, even when they are, so they were called externally displaced. And approximately 900,000 internally displaced. The countries of origin, I mentioned, Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, the main countries of asylum were just four, um, Belize, Costa Rica, Honduras, and Mexico. All these seven countries had a strong commitment to the peace process and saw solutions to displacement as an integral part. Um, refugees were actually seen as pretty strongly as a national security threat, and therefore it was seen as crucial to an enduring peace in the region to deal with the problem of refugees, which seems like such a refreshing um, approach from our perspective now. The U.S. was, of course, deeply involved in these wars and not really a part of the solution. The U.S. didn't participate in Serefka and its actions, particularly during the Reagan administration in the 1980s, were bilateral and highly keyed into the U.S. geopolitical interests. Canada and the U.S. played a more protection-positive role. They had more generous refugee policies, in part because they were trying to differentiate themselves from the approach that the U.S. took. Uh, but they played a very constructive role. The legal basis in the region, and Erica mentioned the Priscilla Declaration today, um, it began in... Central America in 1984 with the Cartagena Declaration, non-binding, but a very, very influential uh, expansion of the refugee definition. That definition was reflected in the Serefka Declaration and Plan of Action, and we continue, I'm not going to talk about this, but uh, 
there continues in the region to be the spirit of Cartagena, and there is a tremendous amount of really progressive um, thinking and state action occurring in Central and South America, all building from the 1984 Cartagena Declaration. So implementation, I'll just say quickly, there was develop, the focus was on development to allow displaced persons to either integrate locally or to reintegrate back home by means of a variety of projects, uh, and the European Union was the main funder of that. And kind of ironically, today, Italy was the largest single donor to Serefka development projects. Uh, it is worth noting that while the U.S. was not a formal participant in Serefka, many refugees entered the U.S. Um, in what's been called a self-help uh, manner, and otherwise, in other words, in an undocumented manner. So that served to take a lot of pressure off the humanitarian system in the region. It's kind of a, a darker note in the general view of Sarefka as being very successful. Part of that reason was um, the people who went to the U.S. and were not uh, recognized as refugees. And I go through some other examples in, in the policy brief. But so turning back now, to, or, or getting now to my four essential prerequisites for successful regional cooperation. Of course, protection first. Um, I'm speaking probably to the choir here, but uh, regional cooperation must be premised on protection. And depending on the circumstances, this can involve treaty ratification, uh, building protection principles into the plan, carrying out status determination, and working towards solutions. And in solutions, I just want to uh, recall again something Erica mentioned this morning, which uh, is the role of labor mobility in the region of the Americas now. It's being referred to as the fourth solution, just um, thinking of ways that refugees can take their credentials and go to another country um, essentially as, as a labor migration scheme. And there are pilot programs underway in the southern cone in Latin America. Uh, so it's not just uh, talking about it, uh, they're actually doing it. And equally important is the role of development uh, efforts in protection and solutions, but that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Uh, participation is the second essential element. Of course, regional cooperation plans that work well need broad multilateral participation within and outside the region. As I mentioned, Europe played such an important role in Sarefka. The U.S. played a very important role in the Comprehensive Plan of Action. This kind of broad participation helps avoid dangers of result to unilateral action, as you know well in Australia, uh, that risk coherent protection strategies. Third is leadership by UNHCR. It's really critical to have an independent, honest broker in a situation like this. And starting with confidence building, UNHCR's most important contribution may be as convener, the entity that brings these countries together. And depending on the situation, UNHCR's contribution can range from first instance status determination to the highest levels of diplomacy. And I'd like to pay tribute to Erica personally for her work uh, and to the organization for allowing her and others like her to flourish. Um, it takes talented and, and committed individuals and an organization that backs them. And finally, implementation and political will. So the final lesson learned is the importance of, of those two. States have to commit to dealing comprehensively with the interests of all participants 
in a single integrated strategy. And then my last point is that while successful regional plans are often known for their founding conferences, as I've been referring to them, the clear best practice is that the gatherings are part of the process and not the plan itself. The conference is only the beginning. Guy and Erica and others have called for an international conference now, meeting on a rolling basis to emphasize the importance of protection as a process. And if I may, I will close with some words from Professor Goodwin-Gill. He's written that the goal is a generations-long project of protection and opportunity, which will strengthen asylum, but also realize human potential at home and abroad. Thank you. Thanks very much, Kate. That was, that was terrific. Um, Dr. Ruvi Ziegler is a lecturer in law at the University of Reading. He is editor-in-chief of the working paper series Refugee Law Initiative at the University of London. He's a research associate of the Refugee Studies Centre at Oxford and an academic visitor at Oxford's Faculty of Law. He's also a researcher at the Israel Israeli a Democracy Institute analysing the treatment of African asylum seekers in Israel as part of the Constitutional Principles Project. He's been a visiting researcher at Harvard <coughs> uh, with their Human Rights Program and the Refugee Clinic, a tutor in public international law at Oxford and legal advising officer at the Israeli Defence Forces Legal Counselor's Office. He holds a doctorate from the University of Oxford, many other degrees, an LLM from Hebrew University, and a Bachelor of Law and Economics from the University of Haifa. His book is, uh, his forthcoming book is called The Voting Rights of Refugees, and that'll be published next year by Cambridge University Press. Thank you, Ruvi. Excellent. Magic. Um, right. Thanks very much for, for inviting me and, and for being on this very distinguished panel. Um, what I will be talking about today is about detention of asylum seekers in the jurisprudence of the Israeli High Court of Justice. Now, this is not a general paper about the rather perilous state of uh, asylum seekers, or as Israeli legislation refers to them, infiltrators uh, in Israel, uh, because, I mean, I was going to give that sort of paper, but in other contexts, that would clearly give me, you know, first marks at presenting the worst pictures globally. But after having heard this morning, uh, um, you know, I don't want second prize from the bottom. So, so I've kept for, you know, an international law type paper that would be drab and technical. Um, so this is the structure of what I want to be uh, talking about. I want to talk about the status of the 1951 Convention in Israeli law, about what's referred to as a presumption of interpretive consistency or compatibility in the absence of incorporation of the treaty into Israeli law, so under uh, quote-unquote dualist theory of international law. Uh, talk about the fact that in the three cases before the Israeli Supreme Court sitting as a High Court of Justice, which has strong judicial review power of primary legislation, including the possibility of striking down legislation, which was um, capitalized in those cases. Um, so um, unlike uh, um, other jurisdictions, as, as you all know, uh, the fact that the bases uh, 
in these cases for striking down legislation to the extent it was struck down was Israeli constitutional law, but with little to no reference to international refugee law. And I want to talk about the ramifications that has. And, and I want to suggest there are two types of ramifications. One type of ramification are, quote unquote, rule of international law type. Uh, and that is first the fact that courts are not fully fulfilling their role uh, in providing judicial guidance in terms of treaty interpretation to the state. Uh, and secondly, is that the state in these instances, especially considering the, uh, the cases in which legislation would actually be struck down, the, the state has avoided a determination that its legislation is incompatible with uh, international refugee obligation, and that is in light of its own position that it isn't incompatible. That is, the position it put forward explicitly in the cases. Uh, but sort of after going very briskly through the, the legislation that I'm, um, that I'm discussing, I want to suggest there are also substantive refugee law ramifications to this. And one is um, related directly to Article 31, the non-penalization uh, uh, of unauthorized entry provisions that was mentioned this morning as well, um, and obviously is very relevant to the sort of legislation that was uh, um, considered in these cases. Uh, in detention and detention-like conditions in, quote-unquote, an open detention facility. But I also want to suggest that Article 34 comes into the, into, uh, uh, into the fore, and that is because the state has invoked very explicitly as one, and indeed in the last round of legislation, as the, mo as the foremost legislative aim, the prevention of settlements of persons um, coming to Israel um, and remaining there. So it kind of links to that point about no way will Australia be your home. So, so this isn't restricted to people coming by boat. That would have been interesting in of the Israeli Gaza and other contexts. But um, it is um, no one shall, shall have uh, Israel made their home in terms of um, settlement. And, and, and I want to suggest that that uh, raises questions as to Article 34. Um, so, as I've already uh, alluded to, um, these, Israel has been one of the first countries to ratify the convention. Indeed, was very active in the drafting of the convention, as, as the travaux préparatoires suggest. But it had never ratified; well, it never incorporated it, rather, into its domestic law. And nor does it have any other form of primary legislation that regulates the procedural and substantive status and rights of refugees and asylum seekers. But alongside that, it also has no subsidiary or complementary protection regime that will fill the gap for those persons who the state either does not recognize after um, an application, an asylum application procedure, or just doesn't bother assessing an application for, um, for protection, but nonetheless deems not to be refoulable or not to be returnable to their states of origin, um, there's no fallback regime that regulates their status in terms of welfare, employment, health, etc. And this is relevant primarily because the two groups of people uh, who are most affected by this, um, Sudanese primarily from Darfur and Eritreans, make up 93% of asylum seekers or quote-unquote infiltrators in Israel. So of the 45,000 or so persons who have uh, under Israeli law, entered Israel without authorization through one of its land borders, and that uh, makes them an infiltrator. Um, and, the, um, and the lack of that regime...
regime is, is very fundamental. Uh, now, as I've suggested, um, Israel doesn't deny the idea that it is bound by the convention. And indeed, the regulation uh, put forward by the Population, Immigration and Borders Authority makes explicit reference to the 51 convention and the 67 protocol. But this is, of course, secondary legislation. It's not primary legislation. Uh, and it's uh, until, actually, 2008 was, was not publicly available. Um, now, as I've suggested at the start, um, Israel follows... Uh, what was uh, one of the many inheritances from British Mandate era, which is a dualist theory of international law, which suggests that treaties, unless they're incorporated into municipal law, are not made part of that law in the sense that they're not given direct effect to create rights and obligations. But there is a presumption that the Israeli parliament intends to legislate in a way that does not involve a breach of the state's treaty obligation, unless it explicitly says otherwise. Um, and, and there are ample references in, in Israeli case law for this. One is the quote-unquote bargaining chips case, um, which um, the former president, uh, Aaron Barak, uh, was discussing at length uh, that case, um, that particular doctrine. Uh, and as I said, this builds on um, UK jurisprudence in, uh, of long-standing history, including fairly recently in the Assange case, uh, on the framework decision on the arrest, European arrest warrant. Um, I just want to point kind of as a, almost as a sideway um, quite an interesting development that may be worthwhile following, which is a statement made by Lord Kerr in uh, a very recent case on the unincorporated United Nations Convention on the Right of the Child, where he essentially says we should be distinguishing between human rights treaties and other treaties in terms of the dualist theory. And there's actually no justification for retaining uh, or, or, as it were, for absorbing the state from uh, exercising obligations towards individuals in terms of rights protection just because he then chose not to incorporate it. That goes against the grain of what was the original reason for the dualist uh, theory, which was not to let the executive actually trump parliamentary powers. Uh, but that's, as I said, you know, just an interesting aside. Um, so what has happened in these sort of three cases of, um, of detention legislation? So what we see is that in the first two cases, um, in 2000 and, decided in 2013 and 14 respectively, uh, the court, the, the main judgment in both of these cases made explicit reference to the interpretive presumption or assumption in, in Israeli law that Israeli law uh, will be interpreted in a way that is compatible with the Refugee Convention. Uh, but there was no substantive refugee law analysis that followed in those particular cases. In the third case, um, and I can't prove um, causation, but I can prove correlation, uh, that case uh, was decided in August. I made the point I'm making here about the invocation without analysis of the convention in a conference in May with the president of the Israeli Supreme Court who was writing or authoring the main judgment in this case. So as I said, no causation. But, um, and, and here in this judgment, there's no reference at all to that presumption. Um, and there's cursory, rather random and rather inaccurate reference to specific refugee law provisions, including uh, Article 9 of the Convention in terms of provisional measures without analysis of how it's relevant, but no reference to Article 31 or 34 uh, of the Convention. Now, why is that such a problem? Um, so the first point I want 
to suggest is, and, and I think it was mentioned this morning as well, that when states sign treaties, even if they don't incorporate it into the domestic law, there is a benchmark, which is set by the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which is that they will have a good faith performance of their treaty obligations in light of those treaties' object and purpose. Now, what I want to suggest is that judicial guidance on a domestic or municipal level is especially required when you've got a treaty like the Refugee Convention that lacks a binding international or supranational mechanism. Now, that sort of um, analysis uh, would lend itself to the compatibility of the legislation that the court had to assess in, in the three cases, having to have been assessed by the court directly in relation to the convention and seeking to try and find a, com a refugee convention compatible interpretation. Now, if one cannot be found, then there should be a determination to that effect. And what I suggest is that the state has all but invited that sort of appraisal by the court. Because if we look at the language the court has used uh, in its judgment, so in the main judgment in the first case, when Justice Arbel refers to the state's position, it says the state believes that the provision doesn't contradict Israel's undertaking in accordance with international law. But, note, it says international law in this area should be interpreted differently in different places because Israel is unique. And Israel has a local and unprecedented uh, matter um, at hand of, uh, quote-unquote, an influx of infiltrators. And so the place should be restricted. And similarly, um, the court in the second case said the state's consistent position is that it sees itself bound to implement the provisions of the 51 Convention. And in the third case, the state reiterates that, um, of course, international law applies, but we should be reminded that the challenges which the State of Israel faces in this area are unique compared with other developed states. So I read this as an invitation for the court to say, do we actually accept that the Refugee Convention in relation to Israel applies differently than it would apply in another contracting state uh, of the Convention? Now, if the court wanted to say this, it could have said this. Um, certainly, the outcome of the judgment in the first two cases doesn't lend itself to this being the starting point for the court, but it just left it standing after having cited the presumption of interpretive consistency. And that lends itself to almost an implicit recognition that there might be something in the state's argument. And, and of course, we all, we're all familiar with um, arguments, uh, including the ones in, in, in Ex parte Adan and, and Pinochet, where uh, the, there is a debate as to whether international law should be interpreted un uniformly across contracting states or not. And it's a debate the court could have entered, but chose not to. Um, now, if we look at what the court has done in terms of substantive review, sort of moving to, to my second part, the basis for constitutional review in the Israeli context of legislation, including on detention, is the Israeli basic law on human dignity and liberty, which, uh, which has constitutional-like status, and makes reference very importantly, and I've highlighted this, to rights that are granted to every person, not every resident or every citizen of any other sort. So, um, and, and the state in, in very initial proceedings actually tried to make the argument that people who enter the state without authorization don't enjoy these constitutional protections, but that was dismissed out of hand by the court. 
And so because detention legislation clearly falls foul of uh, uh, deprivation of liberty, the legislation at hand was, un was assessed against the background of the limitation clause in the Israeli basic law. And a limitation clause has two, as, as many other limitation clauses in, in constitutional documents globally, have two, I would say, equally important components, uh, but one that precedes the other. And, and, and the first is really the idea that legislation has to be enacted for a proper purpose. That is, has to be enacted for a purpose that is recognized as a legitimate aim. And only if you assess that as, as you were as a tick in the box, can you move to the proportionality analysis to see whether legislation actually harms um, individual rights and to an extent that's no greater than is required. Now, what has happened in the specific cases of asylum seekers? So in the first case where the question, the legislation at hand was near mandatory detention for all persons who have entered Israel without authorization, regardless of whether they applied for asylum uh, earlier or not, uh, and, and in all cases, knowing that they can't be refiled under the state's own determination, uh, with various other uh, rather draconian uh, provisions, including in indefinite, potentially indefinite detention if they come from an enemy state of Israel like Sudan. So this was found to be unconstitutional by the court, but not on legitimate aim grounds, which were essentially uh, the idea of having a normative barrier of entering the state alongside the physical barrier uh, along the Sinai border, um, which is a deterrence-like uh, uh, aim, and the idea of prevention and set of settlement, which I'll get to, uh, but rather on proportionality ground. And because it was done on proportionality ground, when the second case came along, the state said, well, if the problem was that we had three years detention, why don't we go for one year and see if that works? Um, and it worked with a few of the judges. Uh, with the others, it happened, but again, on proportionality grounds. Um, and the state, to add to the idea of newcomers or new infiltrators being detained for one year, has said, well, in relation to those who are already in the country, but are determined not to be returnable, um, we are going to issue them residence orders, quote unquote, to reside in an open detention facility. Now that open detention facility was run by the Israeli prison service with an enforced prohibition on work with three headcounts, morning, midday, and evening, in the middle of a military training area and far from any civilian settlement. And so when it came to the court, the court did find it to be detention rather than any other form of uh, holding of people, but again on proportionality grounds, so not denying the, um, the legitimacy of the aims. And the reason for this, I suggest it actually linked to the absence of substantive refugee law analysis, uh, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, and the third case, the very recent case, um, the state has kind of scaled back on both of these grounds. It said, well, one year is, again, disproportionate. We thought it would be proportionate. We got Three judges, I'm being, I'm being a bit sarcastic. Um, we'll go for three months and see if that goes, and that went. Um, and and there's, also, there's also the politics of striking down primary legislation for the third time, um, as you will imagine, uh, not the easiest positions for court to be. And we'll scale down the indefinite detention orders to 20 months. And we'll 
reduce some of the elements of, uh, of that um, open facility, but not significantly. It's still the same place. It's still run by the Israel Prison Service. It's still uh, with an enforced prohibition on work. And what the court did here was to say, well, because the aims are actually legitimate, then even though the policy you're executing is a policy of, quote-unquote, a revolving door, that this is the language of the court. So you're sending some people to, um, to that open detention facility for, um, for a period, and then if they still can't be sent back to their country of origin, you'll take them out and send other people there, and that reduces the burden on the Israeli city centers. Uh, and that is fine in terms of the legislative uh, aims, it's just that it needs to be for a shorter period. Um, and, and I suggest these two, um, these two sort of consequences are directly linked, and that's sort of my, my last bit, to um, the, uh, the absence of Article 31 and Article 34 analysis. So we're, we're familiar with the language of Article 31. I've just highlighted you know, the, the words imposing penalties and the idea that any restrictions of movement uh, until regularization have to be necessary. So there is a call for that legitimate aims analysis. Um, and we, all, we also know that, uh, as the UNHCR handbook says, um, we have a concept of presumptive refugees. That is, if somebody has not been determined not to be a refugee uh, and they are seeking asylum, then... Um, um, and they're seeking it in good faith, then uh, we should um, let them enjoy the benefit of Article 31. Now, again, if the court uh, believes that that is a wrong assessment of Article 31, then it could have said so. But what it ended up doing was, rather than citing Article 31, making a general point about um, the means of entry of, uh, of individuals into Israel, and having a division within the majority on this. So the Chief Justice wrote that it must be remembered that the legislation relates to people who cannot be deported from Israel, who do not pose a concrete threat to state security or lives of a citizen, and whose sin is illegal entry for which the state may not generally penalize them. Without, so that seems like going in the Article 31 direction, but without citing it. But two other majority judges said quite the opposite. So saying uh, this is a group of lawbreakers whose offense in relation to a disciplinary offense supplements the offense already occurred, and note these brackets, leaving aside the question why that person has entered the country illegally. Of course, that question cannot be left aside because it's, it's quite at the heart of the analysis of asylum legislation. And Justice Handel saying, um, whatever the circumstances of the entry, these are persons who have entered illegally. Now, the second point is, and, and the last point, is in relation to Article 34, which says that state parties undertake to, as far as possible, facilitate assimilation and naturalization of refugees. Now, assuming some of these people are presumptive refugees, at the very least, the obligation on the state is not to hinder the possibility of that, of facilitation of their assimilation and naturalization. Now, in this particular case, in the, in the last case that was decided in August, the state overtly suggested that the legislative aim, the main legislative aim of having these revolving door uh, residence orders is indeed to prevent settlement. And when uh, Ju Chief Justice Noor assessed this, 
She said, preventing settlement in population centers is compatible with the state's prerogative to shape immigration policy and choose whether to grant status. And Justice Dubran said the right of the state to formulate an immigration policy that seeks to reduce unwanted demographic changes, which are an inevitable product of illegal immigration and infiltration in particular, um, is within the prerogative. Now, what I want to suggest is the following. The petitioners in this case actually said, well, look, this is a country that doesn't have subsidiary or complementary protection. Uh, it recognized 0.17% um, of um, Sudanese applicants and zero, oh, sorry, if I return applicants, and 0% of Sudanese. It hasn't seen to completion any application by somebody from Darfur. Um, it's clear that the real aim here is breaking the spirit and, and making people want to leave. And indeed, about 2,000 people have, quote unquote, left voluntarily. There are all kinds of financial carrots. There are attempts to have transfer agreements. This is, this is a matter for a whole separate talk. Um, but I, will, I want to, kind of, as you were, give the state the benefit of the doubt and say, let's assume that's not the aim. Let's assume the aim is really just prevention of settlement, which the state says it is then the argument I would put forward is that if the state avoids regulating status rights of person who it deems to be non-deportable to their state of origin, and it prohibits their legal gainful employment, they, they work uh, without authorization and without enforcement, um, and denies their welfare assistance, then even if that is indeed the genuine aim, then segregating them on a revolving door basis, relegating them to a detention center far from population centers um, is arguably incompatible with the object and purpose of Article 34. Um, I hope this is not too controversial a claim to make. Uh, so thank you for listening, and there's some um, further readings on this. Thanks. Thank you, Ruvi. Um, thanks for that very interesting uh, talk. I'm, I'm starting to wonder on what basis Israel is a model for us, though. Um, and thank you for keeping us awake. Um, I, I now have the pleasure of introducing uh, Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, uh, one of our most foremost global scholars in, in this field. Uh, he's the uh, he's Eremit, Emeritus Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, Emeritus Professor of International Refugee Law at the University of Oxford. He practices as a barrister from Blackstone Chambers in London and has had uh, many academic appointments in the United Kingdom, Canada, the Netherlands and uh, many other European countries. Uh, He's a patron of Asylum Aid in the United Kingdom, president of Refugee and Migrant Justice for 13 years, and uh, the founding editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law. He was the editor from 1988 to 2001. And between 1976 and 88, he worked for UNHCR in various roles, including as a senior legal research officer, the legal advisor for Europe, North America, and Australia and New Zealand. Um, he has a number of degrees, all from Oxford. So if I may welcome uh, Guy, please.
thank you very much for that kind introduction, Andrew. And I must say I'm delighted to be back here in this uh, thriving intellectual and practically oriented environment which you and, and Renata and the university and the faculty and Jane and her wonderful colleagues have done so much to, to create and to maintain. The title of my talk today is uh, Order and Chaos, Seeking, with a question mark, Seeking Refuge and Solidarity in Europe. And <clears throat> I googled order and uh, out of chaos, as one does, um, to discover some rather worrying things. It's a favoured phrase or motto of the Masons. That's not the most worrying aspect of it, but I find that it's especially popular amongst apocalyptic groups who uh, glory in, uh, in chaos as uh, the eve of a new, um, a, new, uh, a new order, probably a fascist one. Um, so I hurriedly added that subtitle, Seeking Refuge and Solidarity in Europe. <clears throat> there has not been a day, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, in the last month when the refugee and migrant crisis in Europe uh, has not figured prominently uh, in the media. The Guardian on the 2nd of November uh, noted that some 744,000 people had sought refuge in Europe so far this year, with more than 218,000 making the Mediterranean crossing in October alone, and that is nearly as many as in the whole of 2014. And as Erica mentioned this morning, an estimated 3,440 are believed to have died or gone missing in the attempt. Now, over 90% of those arriving in Europe come from the top 10 refugee-producing countries, with Syrians, uh, not surprisingly, being the largest contingent. They include both new arrivals coming directly from the conflict and others who have moved on from temporary refuge in the region, which itself is trying to cope with over 4 million refugees from that conflict. 2 million of them in Turkey, a million in Lebanon, that's 25% of the population of Lebanon, uh, not far short of a million in Jordan, and other substantial numbers also in Egypt uh, and Iraq. And amongst the other major source countries for Europe to consider today uh, are Eritrea, Sudan, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a number of others in sub-Saharan Africa. More than a third of those who have arrived in Europe have sought protection in Germany, and many thousands, as I'm sure you're aware, are seeking a way through in Italy, uh, Greece, along what's come to be called the Balkan route, through Macedonia, Serbia, Croatia, Hungary, Austria, and beyond, even through Russia and into Finland. Now, although this movement of people in search of refuge is clearly a community issue, and not just an EU one either, some European states have nonetheless attempted unilateral measures of control, including razor wire fences in Hungary, the non-lethal use of force, non-lethal so far, although one, has been, one refugee has been killed on the Bulgarian-Turkish border, uh, criminalization and heavy penalties for uh, irregular entry. And with the events in Paris last week, we now have, of course, to face the challenge of fear, all too easily translated into bigotry. And sadly, there is nothing new in all of this. The Washington Post on the 17th of November published polls on what Americans had thought of Jewish refugees on the eve of the Second World War. In July 1938, 67.4% of those polled favoured keeping them out. In January 1939, after the events of Kristallnacht, 
61% were against allowing in 10,000 refugee children, most of them Jewish. So nothing new on the bigotry front, and I see a lot of Republican candidates and governors in the US are certainly reminding us that it lives. Meanwhile, we remain also trapped by the language of what's come to be called the migration security nexus, which Western states have promoted, certainly since the General Assembly adopted its first declaration on terrorism in 1996, language which was adopted in order to promote and shape the asylum and migration agenda in ways in which Western states wanted. And to this, of course, we must add a further challenge or a related challenge, the challenge of mobility itself, which has also been referred to uh, today. Mobility in a globalized world that is riven by inequality. For we are faced by the need to do right, not only by refugees, but also by those often dismissed as just economic migrants, but many of whom are driven by levels of desperation that are little different from those that drive the refugee. And as has also been mentioned today, in many respects, the crisis in the movement of people in 2015 was, if not entirely predictable in its details, at least foreseeable, as a very likely consequence of turmoil, civil strife, long-standing conflicts, and demographic realities. And despite its laws, its institutions, and indeed its experience, Europe has struggled and is struggling to forge a comprehensive and cooperative response to those in search of refuge. The EU has its common European asylum system. It has its European agenda for migration. These are intended to provide the basis for a coherent response. But this year has demonstrated how far there is yet to travel. So what do I mean by solidarity? First of all, when I reject the use of the word as it was displayed this morning, solidarity is not the Achilles heel. I'd reject that metaphor of the international refugee regime. Entirely the wrong metaphor. At the risk of being pedantic, an Achilles heel is not the same thing as unrealized or partially realized potential. An Achilles heel is an unprotected area. In Achilles' own case, it was the one place where the arrow found its mark and killed him. Solidarity is not weakness. It is strength waiting to be mobilized. It has its basis in community values, in community objectives and standards. And its purposes, if you will, include getting to agreed courses of action, for example, to respond to or to meet challenges which face the collective or which have a disproportionate impact on individual members. Solidarity, when it works, reflects a a shared sense of responsibility between and among members and towards the common good. It embraces the idea of, of mutual assistance, the principle of sincere cooperation, an interesting phrase, not one one comes across very often in a treaty. Sincere cooperation is set out in Article 4, Paragraph 3 of the Treaty on the European Union. Solidarity then connotes interlocking, interlocking and reciprocal duties, and of course their obverse which is individual and community entitlements and expectations. And if we look at the way in which Europe is organized, we can see that the principles are there. They are there in the foundation of the Council of Europe and of the European Union. 
read together in particular with the Charter of Fundamental Human Rights, of Fundamental Rights. Related European jurisprudence is equally a major and persistent element in the background. And the Strasbourg Court's, <coughs> excuse me, the Strasbourg Court's rulings in Medvedev, MSS, and Hirshiyama, not to mention Suring and its progeny, are not going away. On the contrary, they are also making their way, if not entirely seamlessly with the occasional stumble, into the corpus of EU law and its implementation, not least through the judgments of the, European, of the Court of Justice of the European Union. And this, I suggest, has major implications. It perhaps is one of the reasons why Europe is stumbling to some extent. Because this has major implications, this jurisprudence, for the formulation and the implementation of programs to manage migration, including by way of interception and return. The framework of international law and obligation implies more than the passive avoidance of direct harm. It demands, in my view, and I've argued this elsewhere, an active protection role, one in which responsible states are obliged to ensure that those over whom they do or may be expected to exercise jurisdiction and control are effectively protected as a consequence. And, of course, there will always be tensions tensions between what the, the legal framework and the overarching principles demand and what some politicians and bureaucrats would like to do. But that is in the nature of things, and that is how, after all, democratic governments bounded by the rule of law have evolved and how they continue to evolve. Now, within the asylum and immigration context in the European Union, there are some significant Elements. Article 80, for example, of the Treaty on the Functioning of the Union provides that Union policies and their implementation, and I quote, shall be governed by the principle of solidarity and fair sharing of responsibility. Article 78, paragraph 3, in turn, empowers the European Council on a proposal from the Commission and after consulting the Parliament to adopt provisional measures for the benefit of member states confronted by an emergency situation brought about by a sudden inflow of third country nationals. The groundwork had already been prepared. Now, no common European asylum system can work effectively without solidarity and cooperation. Translating principles into concrete action, however, of course, is another matter. And the common European asylum system is itself a creature of many parts. It includes harmonized interpretation of criteria for determining who is a refugee or who is entitled to subsidiary protection. It includes criteria for identifying the member state responsible for determining claims to protection, the Dublin system. It includes procedural standards, reception standards, and Eurodac, the EU fingerprint database. It is premised, indeed, on a, an entirely worthy architecture, but was put together, put together with little regard to what, in my view, must be an essential feature in any regional cooperative endeavour, namely equitable responsibility sharing. It also lacks effective central direction and accountability. On the 23rd of September, the European Commission adopted some 40 what are called infringement decisions against 19 member states 
who were deemed to have made insufficient progress in implementing the common European asylum system. And when one comes to look at how it works, one can see that this system is common only at a certain level, perhaps, of legislative harmonization. In the absence of a regional authority competent to resolve status appeals, national systems will inevitably diverge. Having agreed interpretations is one thing, but refugee status determination, as many of us will recall, offers many areas of what should we call it appreciation in relation to the facts, to the credibility of the refugee narrative, the credibility of the asylum seeker himself or herself, the degree of risk of persecution, and so forth. So no wonder recognition rates have varied so dramatically across the region. The Dublin scheme, too, has its problems. Within the context of the common European asylum system, Dublin approached the alleged problem of forum shopping with the laudable goal of seeking to identify which EU member state should be responsible for dealing with a claim to protection from beginning to end. But even though historically certain states had always received more asylum seekers than others, Dublin was premised on assumptions other than equity. And many northern member states have been quite unwilling to accept even a measure of responsibility to receive and process a proportion of the numbers arriving in the EU as a whole. And this was already evident back in the 1990s when Germany was the once again, the major receiving country of refugees, this time from former Yugoslavia and then from Kosovo. They looked for help. They asked their neighbours in the Union to assist. They got no replies. Dublin did one good thing, in principle at least. By identifying the responsible state, it more or less ended spurious first country of asylum arguments, at least within the region. And so it helped to strengthen the right to seek and indeed the right to be granted asylum. But Dublin did not help to streamline procedures or speed up access to protection on the country. On the contrary, the resulting re region-wide bureaucratization appears overall to have slowed down the process, to have disrupted family unity, to have proven inadequate in the face of the rights of the child and to have had little or no impact on secondary movements. And over the years, it has produced a self-perpetuating region-wide national-level bureaucracy, the costs of which cannot be determined and the efficacy of which is highly contested. It reflects expectations that have proven unrealizable, that asylum seekers would receive equal treatment and consideration wherever they applied, and that there would be equivalence among member states in procedures, reception and integration, and we sadly have come to learn otherwise. This common level of protection is an illusion. How could it not be, given the self-evident disparities among member states, including resources and experience? Greece, for example, for decades had experience as a transit state, mainly for Middle East and Christian minorities, en route to resettlement in North America and Australia. But it had little or none as a refugee receiving state, and there it was, always likely to be on the front line. Why indeed should we expect to build a common European asylum system on such shaky foundations as 28 national procedures? There can be no common European asylum system that is not actually a European one, 
as Article 78 of that treaty on the function of the European Union uh, states to be the purpose. There cannot be any common European asylum system that is not one in which protection decisions are taken by a European institution appealable to a European court and in which decisions are valid region-wide. A European refugee or protected status to be enjoyed across a Europe without internal borders. A Europe in which the protection where question would be answered with multiple choices. And knowing what we know about decision-making, about disparities in recognition rates, can we be surprised that the failures of harmonization are themselves the drivers of onward intra-regional movement? And Europe, of course, has been no less divided on what to do, how to respond to the surge in numbers arriving directly, crossing the Mediterranean in particular. Acting under Article 78 of the functioning of the European Union Treaty, the European Commission <coughs> proposed a provisional relocation scheme to move 40,000 Syrians and Eritreans out of Greece and Italy. And on the 14th of September, the Justice and Home Affairs Council agreed, and a week or so later agreed on a further target of 120,000, which had been supported by a vote in the European Parliament just a few days before. They agreed, too, to set up so-called hotspots to assist frontline states to register, fingerprint, and photograph asylum seekers so as to identify those to be relocated, to which, of course, now I'm sure they will be adding a security dimension as well. They agreed to provide resources to accommodate asylum seekers temporarily to provide some 780 million euros uh, to support the scheme. But, of course, nothing happens overnight. And the reports of the situation in Lesbos have been absolutely terrible, with refugees denied or unable to access assistance, uh, food, shelter, and medical care. Of course, it takes time to respond in a crisis, but the record is not by any means good. Relocation itself will apply to those in clear need of international protection. And that's a notion which is linked to a 75% recognition rate. Currently, it includes Syrians and Eritreans and Iraqis. And relocation goes ahead based on what's come to be called a distribution key that factors in GDP, population, the average numbers of refugees and asylum seekers accepted in the recent past, discounted then by the unemployment rate. How it will work out in practice, we will see. And this was an interim emergency response, something which was foreseen by EU legislation. The Commission, though, rightly has recognised the need for something permanent, a flexible but binding system for sharing responsibility. And that, of course, is what revealed the cracks in the Union, a proposal which, with its obligatory dimension, soon brought national concerns and sovereignty issues to the fore. But this, though, is solidarity at work in its internal dimension. No one ever said it would be easy to get to where we need to be. The solidarity has not only an internal but also an external dimension. And again, Article 78.2 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the Union recognises that the common European asylum system may also need what it calls partnership and cooperation with third countries. And other objectives of the of the system, such as combating irregular migration and trafficking, are also clearly contingent on international engagement. In this context, the, the resettlement of, of, state, of refugees from third states, which Kate has so described, described so effectively, can thus provide protection while also supporting 
first asylum states in meeting their international obligations. Europe's commitment to resettlement, however, remains low. The Commission proposed uh, back in May that the EU admit 20,000 refugees over a two-year period from North Africa, the Middle East and the Horn. But given the numbers in those regions, we can see more places are needed, while other safe legal routes need opening up, as the European Union's Fundamental Rights Agency emphasised in a report earlier this year. They must, there must be legal alternatives to access Europe if the charter right to seek asylum, uh, to, make, to, to asylum is to be made a reality. Rescue at sea and the effective operation of search and rescue obligations in the Mediterranean provide another example of an international multi-state enterprise premised upon solidarity. And I've argued elsewhere that the claim, the clear claim by European states to administer the Mediterranean in the interests of migration management carries with it very particular obligations, not only with regard to surveillance, to monitoring and rescue itself, but particularly also to disembarkation in a place of safety and solutions. And in addition, refugee receiving countries outside the EU clearly need assistance. This means not just financial provision, material help, food, shelter, medical care, but as the onward movement of Syrian refugees from Turkey and the Middle East should surely have reminded us, it also requires proactive solutions-oriented support including programs geared to employment and decent work and to education for children, all children. Even if exile does not, does turn out to be temporary, none of us can predict how long it will be and no child should be deprived of their childhood, no human talent should be wasted because we complacently assume that matters will resolve themselves before too long. They don't and we need to make it happen. Now, although the EU began to think about migration and refugee movements uh, some years back, it has nonetheless failed to adopt, in my view, a holistic and realistic approach. This necessarily means it will have to contemplate cooperating with other states on a basis of equality and equity, dealing with transit and even source countries where appropriate, on the basis of a framework and policies that are themselves founded on the EU's own values. Instead, what we see is too much banging on in 19th century sovereignty fashion about the right to control the movement of people and the obligation of this or that state to readmit their citizens. This may well be what the textbook tells us, but experience shows that this does not deliver. Life is more complicated as every state's record on non-removal shows. For too long, EU migration is, for too long, migration issues have been pushed by the EU and its member states in very unilateralist fashion. So-called mobility and readmission agreements are imposed on other countries as the price for good relations, but with little or no regard to the costs which those countries must pay. Effective migration, as I've emphasized, effective migration management requires equitable cooperation with third states and a framework and policies based upon the EU's institutional values. <coughs> Instead, we have European interior ministers declaring that they want to move forward on a common list of safe countries of origin. 
They want to further reform the Dublin system, which Angela Merkel quite correctly, in my view, described as obsolete in an address to the European Parliament on the 7th of October. They want to develop asylum system capacities in third countries. You can see where this is leading. They want to include safe and sustainable reception and adequate processing in such countries, but do not really appear to have asked anyone over there. On the 8th of October, they called for more effective deportations, urging the EU to use both political pressure and incentives to ensure compliance by countries of origin, encouraging member states, and this was their language, to use all necessary means, all necessary measures to this end, claiming that, and I quote, increased return rates would act as a deterrent to irregular migration. Again, triumph for hope over experience, the failure to learn. Nothing daunted, the European Interior Ministers also proposed to reinforce external border controls through Frontex, its, its, border management, its border management agency. And as many of you will know, on the 9th of October, the UN Security Council adopted Resolution 2240, authorizing EU states, not unambiguously, to take certain enforcement actions against smugglers and their vessels. So here we have a doctrine promoted or propounded by European interior ministers on the one hand, but the reality, I think, is more evident in a recent study commissioned by the European Parliament, which found, and this was published just in October this year, <clears throat> that EU cooperation with third states generally fails to ensure protection for refugees, generally fails to promote legal migration opportunities. And most programs, the study concluded, especially under the EU's global approach, focus almost exclusively on irregular migration, border controls, and so forth. Few activities, by contrast, actually do aim and succeed in strengthening refugee protection in these countries of origin or countries of transit. They don't reinforce the migration development link. They don't deal with the lack of legal migration opportunities. They offer very limited resettlement opportunities. They lack coordination and local ownership. And following a recent visit to Turkey, all that the EU president could say was that it is indisputable that Europe must manage its borders better. We expect Turkey to do the same. No mention was made of the refugees whom Turkey hosts. No mention of what the EU proposes to do to help make their lives tolerable and provide the employment and educational opportunities which they need now, not in some distant future. Turkey, which is now the major refugee hosting country in the world, has indicated that the latest offer of the EU <coughs> of EU assistance did not go far enough. And it's hardly surprising that the political declaration and the action plan which emerged from the 11-12 November Valletta summit between Africa and the EU fell far short of what the European Council had optimistically hoped to see in its outcome document. Yes, there is support for reinforcing the protection of refugees, but the document makes no mention of processing centres in Africa for pre-screening. Yes, there is support for the struggle against smuggling and trafficking and for cooperation on returns, but no mention of that uh, that uh, EU interior minister's phrase of using all tools to promote readmission uh, of incentives or the, the more for more principle, which is also going the rounds as a motto in the EU at the moment, a measure of conditionality inconsistent and incompatible with development policies and goals. And it does seem to me that the EU's dogged pursuit of short-term, generally unrealistic goals needs to be re replaced by a long-term strategy, which recognises that the pressure to seek protection or better protection or even just a means of livelihood will be 
I was going to say a generation's long issue, but I think I heard that already this afternoon. So I'll say it's going to be with us for decades to come. The EU has much to do internally if solidarity is to produce common and effective responses to the protection needs of those who reach its borders. Equally, it has much to do externally if solidarity is to have an impact on the quality of life and opportunity of refugees near and far, and no less on those who, like the 15 million young people, who each year join a labor force where most of the workers face unemployment underemployment or vulnerable employment. Only by committing to effective policies and programs together, and local ownership is no less important to solidarity, can we hope to bring, to bring about alternatives to flight in search of refuge and opportunity. Thank you. Okay.